Look at you looking at the camera. I'm looking right at you guys. <laughs> I'm looking Given at that all smolder. of you. Given that smolder. Is it called also smize? Also smize. Smize, I think, is that? Is that what the kids call eyes? it? Kinda I don't know. I thought that was like a, a mid-2000s thing from uh, Tyra Banks. Is that a... Anyway, this is Freight Alex. <laughs> <laughs> this is not top model. This is, in case you were confused, this is Freightonomics, um, where we combine freight and economics into one amazing package. I am Anthony Smith, lead economist here at FreightWaves, and I'm joined by the one, the only Sultan of Sonar, Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence. And what we like to do here is take all the major macro and some of the microeconomic aspects and the macro and micro aspects of freight combine them together if you didn't know it's a match made in heaven because it <laughs> all comes down to supply and demand so for the next hour we will be your host and zach we have quite the show today we have a special guest as well it's a big show today we've got henry byers our maritime expert here i called him up uh you know i don't know if anybody's heard but we've got a little bit of an issue at the ports of los angeles and long beach you were watching FreightWaves now this morning. You obviously know all about it, but we're going to talk about it in a little bit more detail and what that means to everyone downstream of that, uh, especially because we hear your your buzzword here, uh, inflation. <laughs> inflation, inflation. If you watch FreightWaves now, you know that that drop of inflation, 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 <laughs> that one. But yeah, that is uh, happening and it's still a thing. Yep. Lo and behold, who would have thought? But before we dive into all that, also, if I'm looking down, I'm most likely looking at LinkedIn because we're streaming there right now. And so if you want to jump into the conversation, feel free to make a comment, mm -hmm. shout out, let me know where you're watching from, what's going on. If you just so happen not to be watching on our really dope revamped FreightWaves TV app. So go to tv.freightwaves if you really want to get the full experience, watch everything on demand there. But before we dive in, I have to think our sponsor very relevant sponsor very you. relevant sponsor <laughs> very relevant sponsor and this is envision global we love them over there so if you haven't heard already envision global is a leading global freight audit supply chain management system services company offering enterprise-wide supply chain solutions with over 4,000 global business partners envision global not only provides prompt accurate freight audit solutions but also providing industry-leading supply chain information management solutions and services necessary to help its clients maximize efficiencies within their supply chain. To learn more, visit www.envisionglobal.com. That's Envision Global. Appreciate y'all. With Ooh. lowercase n, because they're trendy. Yeah, lowercase n. I mean, they're. I mean, based on all the information that I've taken in this week, Envision Global should have a lot of phone calls uh, coming their way based yeah. on uh, you know what we're going to dive into. But first off, I want to kind of set the table because we talk about that freight uh, domestically, and we've had a big breakthrough. Now, Anthony, I don't know if you were checking out Freightways now this morning. I was there. You were there. Okay. I was there. I was around. <laughs> so, but we had a big breakthrough and our, I guess our primary, I'm, I'm going to call it our primary index. This is our, you know, the breadwinner index. One of the first ones that we came out with here at FreightWaves and Sonar, uh, the outbound tender rejection index and the outbound tender volume index. And I want to pull these up and show our audience, for those of you that are viewing on that revamped app and uh, maybe online uh, or LinkedIn. You can see our outbound tender rejection index here, paired with the outbound tender volume index. These are our measures of demand, outbound tender volume, and how, uh, and basically contract compliance. 
is kind of our capacity measure, tender rejection rates. So as those tender rejection rates are high, as they have been for 13, 14 months now, uh, rates go up. And when they come down, rates come down in general. Uh, but 19%, 19.8% today, the first time we've been below 20% since July of 2020 and over a year. I had never thought I would see a time where carriers were rejecting electronic requests for capacity one in five times for 13 months straight. Yeah. <laughs> and not that we have fallen dramatically below it by any means, but the big takeaway from this chart here is that we may actually have seen a somewhat of a change of direction. Now, mm -hmm. removing peak season, mind you, that's about to come up uh, and the chaos that that brings, that's a more of a supply side issue where you see carriers basically remove drivers from the market yeah. and tender rejection rates go up. Demand doesn't necessarily have to go up during that period of time. Probably will in Thanksgiving, but it doesn't have to. Um, so this is, to me, you know, removing the next few months. It's going to be interesting in January, February to see what happens. Oh, for sure. And I think this also goes back to uh, even last week when we were chatting with Wes with expectations for next year, because if you haven't seen that one, it was titled Living in 2022, mm -hmm. with kind of talking about what our expectations are here, talking more to 2022 being a little bit slower growth, growth nonetheless, but slower than what we've seen in 2021. And some people are thinking it's going to be the same. It's going to match 2021 or it's going to be more uh, in a sense. But I think what we're going to see now, this might be the early signs of it is essentially um, still growth because just because it's under 20% and at 19 doesn't mean that, you know, all right, we're falling off the cliff, but just, trucks everywhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but you're going to be incredibly busy. I mean, we still see those yeah. increasing vo or elevated volumes, right? And well, so yeah, you see the tender volume index in purple, uh, if you remember it uh, from a minute ago. The yeah. <laughs> demand is still high. Yeah, it's just more of that demand is being uh, you know accepted by the carrier. So they're saying, hey, we're going to pick it up. We're cool with this. But also some of that has to do with all those rates coming up too. Yeah, a lot of rates come up and have come much higher. Um, and one of the big areas and regions that we're watching and we're going to talk about today, Southern California, Los Angeles, Long Beach, et cetera, uh, Ontario, uh, the Inland Empire, if you will, big giant warehouse area, the OTRI and OTVI for both of these areas. So if you see the green line there, that's the outbound tender volume index for Ontario. And the blue line is the tender rejection rate. And this is why we're seeing tender rejections fall. Ontario, one of the second large, well, actually, it's the single largest market in the United States. Pair it with Los Angeles, and it's, on, it's not even close. Um, volumes going up. Now, we had a little bit of a dip here uh, in the last few days, but uh, tending to trend higher and tender rejection rates coming down. Now, why do you think that is, Anthony? Why do you think we see in demand go up, tender rejection rates come down out of Ontario? It's on an island, basically. What's, what's going on there, Zach? We don't even know. We don't even know where Ontario is on the East Coast, man. That's you, like it, not Canada. This is, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so hard to get here. Except, I was talking about this with Mike Vincent. Yeah. Spot rates, contract rates are all now priced so incredibly high. Carriers are climbing or driving over each other mm -hmm. to get to Ontario, Los Angeles, to get all of this action because of all the inbound import volumes, etc. Uh, there's no warehouse space left. <laughs> so this kind of feeds into one of the other things that um, I know Donnie Gilbert talks about all the time is how there's no such thing as a bad lane. There's bad prices. And so 
you can definitely get ahead of Tony <laughs> Gilbert. I'm you can you can get ahead on some of these you know <laughs> movements where like you know what yeah I'll go to this bad market for a price or I'll mm-hmm. go to this good market for a price. So you get paid on upfront. You might deadhead because I you know on the other end of that you're going to get paid out for mm-hmm. it. So is that what we're seeing right here? Basically, yeah. I mean, think about so if you looked at truckstop.com's rate from Los Angeles to Dallas, it's over like four dollars a mile. <laughs> That rate was $1.60 a mile in 2016, you know, 17. So you could almost, in theory, if costs remained level, which they haven't been, um, you could price your way, you, you could leave and run that lane and then drive empty all the way back and make the same amount of money that you made moving out to Dallas doing a full return trip. <laughs> <laughs> That is a nuance. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the world we're living in now, and it's all about balance, and we don't have it. Uh, right now, it's very imbalanced, and we're going to dive into some of the reasons why it's imbalanced here in a minute with Henry Byers. But first up, I want to bring up our meme. Oh, who, who was this one supplied by? So, I got to give a shout out to, and this kind of... He grudges me a little bit because I know I'm going to hear about it. Marianne Hensley, uh, one of our uh, vice presidents of, you know, content, sponsored content generation something. Uh, and she sent this to me and I thought this is probably the single most relevant meme for what we do here uh, that we, we have. Um, for those of you that can't see and that are just listening, this is George Costanza, Seinfeld. Do you even know who this is? No. You don't even know who this is. Seinfeld, for those of you that know, uh, you'll know. Uh, the one man who can solve the supply chain crisis, Art Vandelay, importer-exporter. You don't even get it, do you? This no. is lost on you completely. Art Vandelay, it was his, his made-up persona that he, he said he was. Oh. It was kind of his alter ego. Got you. To impress people. Got you. All right. Yeah. All right. So, that, that makes more sense. So... Yeah, I, I definitely never watched an episode of this before. <laughs> and uh, no, wait, 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 course, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I'm looking see. at the meme now. We just heard from the production team. That's actually you. That's me. That's your That's George, me. your Art Vandalay. <laughs> I would be doing, I'd be doing good to be Art Vandalay right now. Or maybe not. Maybe not. We're going <laughs> to break that down here in a second. Obviously, the import, export. Well, more import than export. At this point, but mm-hmm. those uh, part of the problem is the imbalance in import exports um, and exports, of course, are very much not as much of a thing out of the United States going to China versus the other direction, which has caused a lot of these problems. So, uh, yeah, that meme extremely relevant. And we're going to talk more about it in just a second. But first, let's get to the news. Newsonomics. Yeah, let's talk about some news. Now, a lot of the news is going to set the table for Henry here in just a second, but because it is it is the leading story and you've got to lead with a lead, as I've been told. Uh, yes. But first up, the big the first big story I want to talk about is Echo's uh, earnings. You know, I'm a finance geek, so I have to give a shout out to the earnings. Uh, but there's some takeaways in these financial reportings that I think are quite relevant. Um, so Echo Global Logistics, uh, basically the traditional uh, 3PL broker of freight. They have managed transportation and um, transactional spot market freight that they, they handle all throughout. Uh, one of the big takeaways, though, is that their transactional, it was 77% transactional business in the third quarter. That is up significantly from 2019, which was 
right around 59%. So mm-hmm. can we break, what is transactional? Transactional would be uh, anybody that's calling you as a broker uh, that says, hey, I have five loads I need covered out of Los Angeles uh, today. I don't have an ongoing agreement with you, et cetera. Cover my freight. Yeah. Find a truck for me. That's a transactional load. Uh, contracted or man- managed trans is more like ongoing agreement. Like we have, hey, you're going you're gonna to manage all of our outbound Los Angeles freight for us. Here's the amount of money we're going to spend on it. And so that's not a surprise. It's yeah. kind of like set for some time. Yeah. It, it's not necessarily always contracted. It's more, it, it could just be like, hey, we're budgeting for this amount, but you're still going to get charged for it. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do our best. To keep those rates down, it's a little bit more you. of a stable variable. A little, sta- more a little stable, bit more. Yeah, so that they they've definitely benefited from some high spot market rates. Yeah, uh, it's not always that easy though, because if the market's going higher, and you're, you're locked in at a lower, you're locked in. You're you're trying. You think that you're going to get the same rate that you got last week, and the market's just going tick 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 tick. Those margins compress real quick mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, as people bid that out. So it's still it's still an impressive feat to have beat the street by 20 cents per share, 20 cents per share, uh, 93 cents a share. Uh, they were expecting 73, um, which is still significantly higher yeah. than it was the year before. Um, brokered truckload volumes increased 15% year over year with revenue up 51%. <laughs> That's a wild number. And, and this is all happening just as they're going back to private equity, like a private equity company that hasn't been finalized yet, but they have basically, they're going back out of the public arena. So we, in theory, won't hear about them in this same format next year because they'll be private and not public. Uh, but private equity, if they locked in uh, their rate, they're, they're feeling pretty good about it right now because, yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot of activity going on in the M&A space for transportation as well. And definitely, this is the time for mm-hmm. it. If you are in this space, it is a highly valued industry, more so than what it mm-hmm. has been maybe in the last year or two, especially right. in 2019. Um, so what we're seeing right now is almost kind of a trend, like it happens and it kind of fades away. The next thing you know, freight is kind of back into the forefront with mm-hmm. something happening and, you know, it's in, you know, it's such tight demand. So we're seeing it right now at a pretty extraordinary level. Yeah. And so that being said, it, I, I mean, it's kind of earnings have all been pretty positive overall for everyone. It's I, I feel like, Anthony, though, we're sort of peaking uh, for transportation right now. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't have any facts. I use feelings there. I was trying to relate to you. <laughs> all uh, feelings, no facts on that one. All feelings, feel no it. facts. Uh, that's a little intuition. I feel like we might be peaking a little bit, but I don't know that. There's nothing other than the tender rejection index that tells me that things are starting to at least not change as fast. Well, Zach, let, let me, you know, flip some of this because I can provide some facts on some econ data points that have had... Look at this, flipping happened. the script on me. Yeah, so <laughs> one of the things that you uh, mentioned about the outbound tender rejection index is mm-hmm. that it's kind of below what below 20% for the first time since January of 2020. Uh, we have had one of the lowest GDP reports since 2020 as well, the first half of 2020, it was up 20 or two percent on a quarterly basis. So, a, a stark ink or, or you know decrease from what we've seen historically or over the last couple of quarters, what we're seeing like 6.3 percent quarterly growth, 6.7 percent uh, quarterly growth. Now we're seeing two percent quarterly growth. And so, but I, isn't that just the comp 
aren't we just now, are, are you talking about quarter over quarter? Quarter, quarter to quarter. So, so quarterly growth was 2%. Se sequential. Yes. Well, that's not, well. It's not, it's not awful. It's not super shocking, right? It's not awful. The, so the expectation was from a lot of different outlets, a lot of, you know, highly touted economists was going to be somewhere around 3 to maybe 3.5%. Mm -hmm. So coming in around 2% was a little bit of a shock. No, no, no. Now, hold up here, yeah. Anthony Smith. I'm going to, you know, I'm not an economist, but I was, I've always been told that it's just not healthy to have a 6%. It's not sustainable. Growth. It's not going to yeah. be like, <laughs> you're, you're talking almost at that level, like, you know, China just having double digit growth for, yeah. you know, however many yeah, years yeah. in a row. We because... looked at their chart and it's almost like, actually, this looks like on trend. They mm -hmm. just regulate because we just had a crazy year. I don't we know if you saw an that. absolutely wild year. <laughs> I, I, I missed it, but I heard we had a wild year. And definitely because on a year over year basis, I think this was the quarter where we just saw like a 30 plus percent increase. So these annual comps are going to get a little bit wonky for sure. Right. But when we're looking at um, what was happening throughout the third quarter, of course, mm -hmm. we had more concerns around Delta. That was really hitting a lot of people hard. You saw a little bit of a decline in consumer spending, uh, consumer consumption of, uh, of durable goods. And right. um, we saw a little bit tick up, for sure, a tick up in services as well. But the thing is, is that there was a subtle decline across the board. I don't think this is going to match what we're going to see in the fourth quarter. Right. I think we're going to see maybe a little bit more growth in the fourth quarter. Um, because it's as the fourth we, quarter. It's fourth quarter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let fewer uh, concerns around Delta, things like that. But going into that first part of 2022, the expectation is, of course, so there's going to be a lot of volume. Mm -hmm. we, we know there's going to be a lot of volume. One of the things that we're seeing kind of come down, though, I think some of the inflationary pressures are starting to take hold. So right. we're starting to see not as capital goods. It's been a long time coming, right? It's been a long time coming. <laughs> we were waiting for it. Yeah. And we're kind of hitting the, the nail on the head on the timing right mm -hmm. now because we're seeing non-defense capital goods new orders, a good proxy of business-to-business -business activity, starting to ease a little bit more. Now, we knew it was we were calling a, an easing and manufacturing uh, or the peak for manufacturing and the rate of growth um, some I think a couple months ago, but now we're starting to see orders come down. I think we're going to start to see orders kind of peeled back a little bit because now we're starting to see, hey, I'm still waiting on this backlog. Right. Um, and now I'm, I'm paying this increased price. Why would you do that? For, you know, something I'm not even going to get for eight months from now. So I think we're going to start to see more kind of a, a, a peel back on new orders coming in. But that doesn't mean that we're going to see a drop off in volume. So a uh, flatbed. Not uh, for a while. Not for a while. Yeah. We're going to see volumes kind of continue to be elevated mm -hmm. as we see other segments of manufacturing, industrial segments um, really kind of wane a little bit just as more of those backlogs are worked through. I think that's really going to set the foundation for the expectation that 2022 going to be a, a you know a relatively strong year, just not going to be 2021 right. um, by any means. Yeah. So I think on that note, like you really kind of did set the table for what we're about to dive into here. And this is going to be our maritime spooktacular because Halloween's right around the corner. And also, I think a lot of shippers are freaking out yeah. about the next bit that we're going to go into. You got a spooktacular shout out from Kyle Taylor. Kyle, we appreciate you <laughs> out in, in, in Florida. Thanks for tuning in, my guy. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle Taylor, Tampa Kyle. Um, so the... <sighs> You know, we just had these all these announcements this week. So the Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach. This is the newsonomics section, by the way. So we're we're back in the news, <laughs> and 
these next, basically the rest of the news is all around this one thing. Um, Eric Coolidge wrote this uh, story on Monday, I believe. Forgive me if I'm wrong there, but ocean carriers will pass on fines or uh, for lingering containers to importers. So this is the trickle down, and this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through these stories, and then we're going to bring on Henry and get his thoughts on, on a lot of this. But uh, I've, I've got our big, our big maritime writers here. Uh, you know, Eric's our air cargo guy, but he dabbles in the, in the international American shipper space quite a bit. Uh, Lorianne Laraco and Greg Miller, of course, uh, all wrote on this piece in different ways, kind of hitting different sections of it. So I'm going to hit these in sequence here. So Eric Coolis talks about how shippers are, are these, uh, the ports are going to start levying daily fines <laughs> for containers that have been at the port longer than a certain period of time. So whatever they choose to be, uh, you know, it's, it's over like five days traditionally, but I don't know if they've defined it clearly right now. Uh, but if you're, you're at, if your container is sitting at the port, you're getting $100 the first day, $200 the second day, $300 the third day, et cetera, et cetera. And this is going to get, you know, supposedly the idea here is to motivate the shipper or the shippers, I guess the container shippers, the boats, <laughs> Maersk, uh, 3M, et cetera, to remove these containers from the ports because their big part of the port congestion is there's too many containers sitting there. There's all these empties. Some of them are on chassis, some of them aren't. Um, so can they do anything about that? The, the boats sure can. They can mm -hmm. have boats come in and clean out all, they call them sweepers. They come yeah. in and they clean them out. And again, we'll get Henry's more detailed expert opinion on this here in a minute. But uh, yeah, there are things they can do, except this charge in theory, and this is what a lot of these articles kind of point out, the carriers, all they have to do is just pass along the costs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily motivate them because that's what they do. They pass along costs and fees to their customers for all the port charges. We used to get them all the time. Ocean, ocean charges, they called it. And yeah. there's just this big lump of anonymous fees that you just got. Sometimes they went up, sometimes they went down. Demurrage, this will get lumped into demurrage charges, uh, which again, we'll ask Henry about in more detail here in a minute. But uh, all they're saying is, this is just going to be an inflation just a giant inflationary pressure. It won't do anything to clear out the containers. And Lorian Laraco article uh, essentially did the math on it here and says carriers must move 60,000 containers out of LA, Long Beach by Halloween. <laughs> and she does some math here. Uh, that, that's a total of, you know, well, 33,000 need to be out of Port of Los Angeles, 27,000 out of Long Beach. $2.6 billion worth of value uh, there <laughs> in terms of total uh, movement. And Greg Miller's article here, uh, Shippers Fear Catastrophic Fallout from Crazy California Port Fees. Uh, basically, he interviews a bunch of people involved in this, um, basically saying the cure is worse than the disease. Uh, critics of an emergency plan of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, backed by the Biden administration. Uh, if you think port congestion is bad now, just wait for what comes next. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this looming, dark, ominous thing. Chassis are already in short supply, and this will artificially suck out the rest of the containers that may be sitting in there at the terminals uh, that didn't need to be on chassis, and now they're going to be parked somewhere. It's probably going to wipe out whatever's left in terms of chassis. Rick Roche 
uh, vice president of international transport at Mohawk Logistics says. Mm -hmm. um, Bob Connor, executive vice president of global transportation at Mallory Alexander International Logistics, says, this absolutely came out of left field. I don't see the charge doing anything but adding more cost and freight rates being what they are. This is the last thing we need. So basically saying, all it's going to do is add fees and not move any of the containers. <laughs> not an actual solution here. Not a real solution. And if you listen to Lorianne LaRocco on Freightways Now this morning, she basically calls out the Biden administration and yeah. says, you guys must want inflation. <laughs> and why would they want inflation, Anthony? Why would they want it? Because they think that's it's a lever that they can pull for a price increase to incentivize, but there's going to have all these other unintended consequences, similar to when usually a government entity kind of intervenes in something without really fully understanding the implications of what's happening. So I'm not the maritime expert, um, and I'm certainly not the economist, but this, when you have this much outreach, I mean, we, we talked about it. I'm not the person to, to ask about this, but last week we talked about, uh, you know, whether or not the 24-7 had an impact. That was largely just lip service, had zero impact whatsoever, did nothing. Uh, seems like there's a lot of noise in politics here uh, with some agendas kind of under the surface that we can't clearly see. But this one looks like, with enough people, that this sounds like this isn't going to fix anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just doesn't. So let's bring on Henry Byers, uh, who's patiently waiting here. Henry, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, your your timing couldn't be more impeccable um, for showing up because to it's be, to be Art Vandalay. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're our you're our Art Vandalay. You're our importer exporter <laughs> uh, for sure. They should have had your picture on there. Uh, but Henry, thanks for show, for coming out today and uh, and talking to us about this. So. I know you've heard and read and seen all this fallout. I want to I want to get your your take on the fees and and what they may or may not do uh, for the con, uh, container congestion. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with um, you know the, with your, the analyses that you were mentioning earlier. Um, you know, really as far as you know additional fees and, and much of those from the ocean carriers will be passed on you know, fees or may even have some margin on top of that just for, you know, outlaying payments on behalf of, you know, importers, things like that. I think it is indeed. It's another inflationary pressure we just really don't need at the moment. Um, so so I, I would certainly agree with that. Um, but but we're also dealing with a really tricky situation, right? I mean, you've got all these players, you get the ports, the individual port terminals, which are also, you know, add an, an interesting dynamic, then the ocean carriers, then the importers, then the drainage carriers, the chassis pools, it's uh, it's seemingly simple how it all operates, but it's also, you know, there's a lot of complexity in the relationships that are involved with those boards. Yeah, I kind of want to, I kind of want to break it down a little bit for people that aren't super familiar. You were a freight forwarder. You dealt with a lot of these things, um, you know, in detail. Uh, so I, I kind of want to back up a little bit here and kind of set the table. So you just mentioned a whole slew of things that some people may or may not be familiar with in terms of chassis pools and, you know, empty versus loaded container. Like they, I, I kind of want to back up and say, okay, so walk us through what normally happens. You know, you have these 20 and 40 foot containers and they move, right. you know, on a boat and then they get offloaded at the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach or wherever. Then what happens? Tell, tell, move that container off that boat and, 
Take us through its journey through the United States, if it even goes into the United States. Yeah, sure. So once the, the vessel, you know, gets a berth, the containers are all floated. Um, generally, what's waiting you know, to happen at that point is generally just things like customs clearance. You're waiting for the charges to be paid. So, so the freight has to be paid for, as you, you would expect, if the, the ocean carriers, you know, really releasing control of the cargo once it, you know, moves via a drayage carrier, you know, assumingly to a, a door destination. Um, so, the, you know, making sure the, the fees are paid for the transportation itself, making sure the, the terminal report fees are also settled up uh, with, you know, and then also making sure customs clearance and customs and duties have been, you know, properly paid. Um, you know, once all that happens, the cargo essentially gets released um, and a drayage carrier would at that point, you know, come to the port, um, secure a chassis. You know, sometimes you have privately owned chassis, but generally they're, they're provided by, you know, a third party or, you know, a port, you know, terminal relationship themselves. Uh, so they pick up a chassis. Explain what a chassis is real quick to certain people. I want to make sure that, whatever, yeah. What the container sits on. So. If we're talking about 53-foot dry vans, you know, your normal tractor trailers on the road, you know, shipping dry cargo, essentially, you know, that that box is sitting on, you know, a chassis essentially composed of a frame with wheels um, and axles, you know, that's able to, to travel on the, the highways, obviously. Um, and likewise, it's just the without the, the box, right? So the container becomes the box, sits on the chassis. You know, obviously, there's 20-foot and 40-foot containers, 40-foot high cubes, even 45-foot containers. Right. Um, so, so sometimes, you know, when it's a heavily loaded container, it, it, it may be in need of something that's called a triaxle um, that's capable of carrying that additional weight. But essentially, a chassis is obtained, um, and at that point, you know, you're able to get that container out. So that's really an interesting uh, or, or a very critical piece to it is having the chassis availability in order to get these containers that are either loaded or unloaded um, out of the port uh, and free up space for that, that incoming cargo. So there are just chassis, or there's just containers sitting on chassis at the port right now, correct? Uh, they're just empty containers with on chassis, right? Yeah, all the containers sitting in the port, um, are, are a majority, I should say, um, are, are just stacked um, on the ground directly. Um, so that, that also is an interesting dynamic, because if you think about, you know, they can only build so high, um, you know, and like we've seen here recently, if those containers are empty and are outside the port, they can only be stacked so high. So you have this, this interesting relationship between, you know, how um, these containers, when they're on the ground, how they need to be positioned in, inside. The, it's like a complex uh, puzzle, you know, a jigsaw puzzle, how they can adequately put all these containers together. There are also weights they have to take into consideration. Um, so they're not all on chassis ready to move outside the port. They're, you know, a, a good bit of them are actually sitting on the ground stacked, you know, three, four, five high, depending on the port, the, the situation. So Henry, the other thing that I, I definitely want to get your explanation on for everyone watching right now is if you can kind of break down and explain the merge and detention and kind of how we're seeing it uh, play out right now. Sure. So, so the merge is, is generally viewed of being charges that are incurred, you know, inside the port um, and detention um, is, is normally associated with the charges that are, you know, incurred by the, um, shipper or the ultimate consignee um, is responsible for because when you when the, the containers in the port you know those those ports a lot of certain amount of time to the ocean carriers who are still viewed of you know as is in possession of this cargo um, and then when it's you know once it moves outside 
the, the port, you know, generally most, most importers use a third-party drainage provider um, to, to schedule that door delivery. Um, so they have a little bit more control, but ocean carriers, you know, if they're relinquishing, you know, control of those goods at the point that it exits the, the port altogether, that's when that detention takes over. And so what's really interesting there is, you know, these ocean carriers, you know, in the past years past have been allocating things like, you know, 10 to 14 days of free time at the ultimate, you know, distribution center. So what I mean by free time is the amount of time that container can sit outside the port. So what happens is, is a lot of these, you know, uh, you know, large volume importers that have significant amount of free days take that those containers or as much as many as they can, you know, position them in dock doors and over time, you know, over that 14 day period, ultimately get them empty and, and ready to return normally in what they call like a drop and hook scenario. So, so drainage providers are kind of just taking a, taking a loaded, grabbing an empty, taking a loaded, grabbing an empty and, and give kind of a discounted rate based on that. Um, but those are generally how those charges are viewed. Yeah. So, I mean, and then the scenario that was laid out by in, in Eric's article, those $100, $200 fees per day, those would technically be a demerge fee, correct? Uh, yeah, it's inside the port, you know, charged to the ocean carriers, which to them would, would, would bring into context his, his points about um, it being a, largely a pass on fee. Yeah, Right. Because it's the, you just said it, the, the maritime carriers are the ones that technically own the freight, which is very important in transportation, who has possession of the freight. Um, sure. So it, it sounds, I mean, you just, you just, the, this freight has barely left the port, <laughs> the port situation. And you just mentioned customs clearance, paying like five or six bills in there almost. I lost count. Uh, you've got chassis problems that you need uh, fixed. You got, you got to have a, dry, a drayage provider, the driver that takes it off the port, etc. It sounds like there is literally like, you know, seven, eight, nine moving parts in this equation. And mm -hmm. to target one, as a lot of our people have said, seems kind of like, uh, uh, you know, throwing darts at a wall, like you really aren't going to make that big of an impact. Do you, do you, I mean, is there, is there some, if you were to target one part of that whole kind of mechanism, is there one that you would target more? Do you think that that's even realistic to think that one part would have more power than the other to make something change? What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think uh, I think any trying to do too much in any one um, you know any one category could almost be um, could, could almost you know complicate the situation further. In my opinion, um, it is such an you know interconnected, uh, and this has been you know this has been years and years. I mean, you could argue hundreds of years in the making as far as the relationships between longshoremen ports, the ocean carriers. I mean, you know, shipping you know, goes back hundreds of years, obviously. Um, so in that similar context, these relationships of, you know, attacking any one portion of them, um, I think almost would, could have, you know, uh, adverse consequences if, if all parties aren't taken into consideration. So it's one of these things where, you know, what do we need first? I mean, it's, it's very obvious that the chassis situation there's not a lot we can necessarily do in that regard. Um, it's just manufacturing them, right? I mean, a lot of the components that go into those are even probably in short supply at the moment um, already. So it's one of these things where, you know, can we allocate resources from other ports to, to help facilitate that? And can the government help subsidize, you know, the transportation of, of chassis on the rail or, um, you know, on flatbed trailers, things like that? I mean, we're going to have to get creative, 
um, at the, the end of the day, because what we're seeing on the origin side, and you may, this may, have been, may or may not have been one of your questions, but we're seeing demand, you know, it is tapering off some um, as far as volumes that are leaving every day, you know, destined for the United States. So as far as like volumes that are still coming, they're still elevated. And I'm not going to say that they're not enormous volumes, but essentially, um, you know, those are those are starting to taper off some. And so I think we will see uh, some pressure relief on that side of the equation. However, we got to focus on the, the freight that's there that is in the water, essentially holding up the entire um, you know process of how those ocean container vessels move. So, um, you know, we really need to focus on just what's there, get it out of there. Um, as soon as we possibly can. Can we do things like Ryan Peterson from Flight Sport mentioned, like stacking empty containers, um, you know, higher than, than it's normally allowed and getting approval to do that in those local governments there near the port. Um, you are going to have to think outside the box for sure. Ah, see what he did there? I see. That was good. That was good. Yeah, as Art Bendeley would say, it's, uh, it's pretty complex. <laughs> it, is, it is very complex. So Henry, I mean, uh, that that really kind of hit the the nail on the head. On the next question, I was going to ask is if we're seeing any um, slowdowns, and, and definitely, I think Zach had a, a really cool chart here, the IOTI uh, chart prepped um, for us. And so, can you talk to or some things that you're seeing in some of the sonar IOTI um, indices for those that may not be familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're measuring there, um, when we're, we were tackling the, you know, trying to show more visibility into the demand side of ocean sh- ocean container shipping. And so what, what was most uh, important or what I viewed as, as most important since we have access to the data is to display volumes that are actually moved from origin. So there's a lot of ways to slice and dice this data. You can do it. Um, you can look at all volumes leaving all ports of origin around the world. Um, you know, an index that represents the volumes that have you know, moved for yesterday and are expected to move in the next seven days. Uh, and in looking at it from an origin basis, you start to see a lot of the pressures that shippers deal with at origin as far as getting space on these vessels. You can imagine the amount of, you know, um, volume that's actually moving obviously puts a significant amount of strain on that capacity. And so right now, what's really interesting is capacity is getting held up at the ports of the U.S. and can't, you know, facilitate it, its, its, you know, uh, responsibilities on a future you know, uh, shipment from one of those origins that it's supposed to be at, um, you know, 30, whatever, 45 days up the road. Um, so that, that's really been super impactful as far as looking at, you know, ha- how much demand in terms of volumes are, are actually getting on these vessels and moving to the U.S. And so what we've seen in, in both the, the U.S. volumes as a total and from China to the U.S., which has a, a, a huge impact on drive and truckload volumes, we've seen the very clear correlation there. Um, we are seeing it, you know, it is tapering off some. We're, we're past the peak of peak season, essentially, is how we should view that. Uh, volumes will, are, are expected to m- remain relatively elevated at least until Chinese New Year of 2022. Um, but we could see volumes, you know, stay elevated, you know, through the next three or four months as things, you know, continue to work themselves out as you know, rebuilding of inventory and things like that. And, you know, risk, further risk mitigation by having more inventories on hand, I think is going to be a big thing heading into 2022. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on on that one. Uh, the overstocking, I, I know that we read that stat about shippers overordered by like 44% uh, over the last uh, few months, that kind of panic buying mentality, uh, scarcity for the econo- mm-hmm. economists out there. Um, so, uh, you know, the IOTI, definitely hit like a peak season type uh, 
level in August. Um, and since then, though, there's been a different kind of shift, like in the way the IoT TI behaves, which is measuring bookings uh, from you know their ports of origin to the uh, destinations for the for the ocean freight. And it looks to me to a lot more volatility has taken place. Like we were in April, May, like, yeah, it was high and it was super high, but, you know, it really started to edge down. And then sometime in August, it shot up and then it's shot down and then it's up again. Like, it just seems to be moving a lot more erratically. Do you think that, is that a, a process of any one thing or are there multiple things going on there? Yeah, honestly, I think some of it, it's a combination of things, obviously, when you're looking at all volumes, um, you know, coming to the U.S., um, a reason for the volatility or recent volatility in that index specifically, in my mind, is the, the combination or kind of the domino effect of origin port congestions abroad. And so, like, we're talking about, you know, Vietnam has had significant issues at certain periods of time. China's had significant issues for coronavirus outbreaks and, and kind of, you know, cur curtailing port operations, at least the, enough to affect the flow of cargo. And then India has been another one. And these are, these are really the top three origins as far as U.S. imports are concerned, you know, especially during this, this, this time of year, traditional peak season, right? Um, so it, it's kind of added, you know, you're not having that. Everything's not able to ship all at once. And you've also got the tremendous U.S. side port congestion going on. So it's interesting to think that, you know, you could almost make a case that, you know, while things are as erratic as they, they, they are and you hear in the news and, and, and the ports have a tremendous, you know, task ahead, essentially, um, you know, things, things, there's a lot at work here, uh, trade relationships, you know, coronavirus, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on. So it's, um, you know, I think we are kind of on that way back towards some form of normalcy and, you know, in, in Q3, Q4 of 2022. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's got to remember, it's going to take six or eight months to, you know, really get somewhere where we, you may feel that pressure directly, depending on, you know, which operation you're in within this, you know, greater old global supply chain. So, Henry, keeping the, the topic on the outlook, want to kind of talk to a little bit more around rates. Where do you see rates right now going over the next few months? Over the next few months, I think there's going to be I think there's going to be some downward pressure. I think the the rate at which they uh, the rate of change from where they were you know really 18 months ago to you know, where they've been recently um, that that rate has been was was so quick um, and it was such a quick rate of change that I think that there's the the slightest tapering of demand will start to open up the ocean carrier's eyes to maybe that backside of peak season and I think you've certainly seen. Some of that already with, with um, you know, rates changing multiple thousands of dollars uh, as far as a decrease on those major trade lanes, at least on the Trans-Pacific eastbound. Um, and I think that's what you're going to continue to see for the next, you know, month or so, two months. Um, I think the carriers will probably get away with, with adding some pressure back to the system prior to Chinese New Year with a, um, you know, a rush of volumes then potentially um, just to kind of further complicate the rebuilding of inventory again. Uh, but I do think we are kind of, again, we're back on uh, the, the backward side of peak season, essentially. And I think rates will be, you know, headed in a, a steady but downward trend, um, you know, here for probably in the next, you know, year or so. Um, and then they'll probably stabilize somewhere that's, that's higher than most shippers would like to hear, I think, at this point, um, as far as a, a long-term contract fixed rate. 
Yeah, let's put let's let's dive into that a little bit more detail here because I know a lot of shippers out there definitely are wondering. I mean, sure, there's some inflation in this price that we're seeing. You know, you saw the Fratos Baltic exchange rates there uh, in those charts uh, from Sonar, and of course the Drury World Composite Index from uh, Shanghai to Los Angeles. Um, it, it looks like we have kind of peaked out on the rates, and they're starting to settle down a little bit and slowly. Now, being a former pricing guy. Uh, I know how sticky those rates can be. Uh, once you get, once people charge, can get away with charging you more, uh, that's that's going to be a big thing coming out of this whole scenario. It's not just transportation, but we're talking about the goods, the commodities, uh, things that aren't traded, uh, you know, on the commodities exchange, where the prices kind of settle nat- like quickly. Uh, they can go up real fast and they can come down real fast. This is different. These are contracted rate agreements for the most part. And I know the maritime carriers, you know, control their space a lot more than the domestic uh, truckload carriers and providers do. So I have a feeling here, and correct me if I'm wrong, that these rates, even though we're going to probably cut off some of the noise uh, relatively quickly, I, like you said, what level uh, are we going to see like when you looked at the Freitos index, I know we have a lot of additional fees and stuff that they pumped in there in August to kind of make sure everybody knew what they were actually paying. Do you think that's going to fall all the way back down to you know 10% above where we were in 2019, uh, 20%? Do you have a sense there? I know you're, I'm not asking you to predict the future specifically, but what's your sense there and how long do you think it'll take to get there? Yeah, no, that's a, appreciate the question. It's a, it's really on a, you know the top of most uh, you know large large volume importers or even me, medium perhaps um, just as much on on everyone else. I mean, it's going to be you know front of mind coming this contract season. But I think that you know what I could say is that resistance to those rates going back down from ocean carriers and and anything that they could possibly leverage as far as blank sailings or you know quote unquote further controlling capacity which is, you know, essentially just, you know, removing you know, vessels from either a, a port call or um, from an entire, you know, service rotation altogether, therefore reducing the amount of, you know, capacity for those, those TU volumes. Um, what, what I think we're going to see is, is, like I say, that slow but steady downward trend um, on spot rates. And, and perhaps when we get to Q3, Q4, um, we'll obviously have another peak season to contend with. Um, but, I, but I do... I do think between Q2, Q3, you will see some shakeout and some of that excess, some of that fat you could say that's been, you know, up there on top of the spot rates. Um, but for long-term fixed contract rates, I mean, I think you could realistically be looking at a scenario where um, you're paying 200, 300% higher, uh, you know, per TEU in the for fixed rate contracts, um, or excuse me, per FEU, I should say, um, per 40-foot container on those contracted rates. And uh, I think carriers will have a lot of justification that going into this contract season. And I think shippers and importers that signed, you know, really low rates will be very in tune with the fact that if, if something else happens and, and demand surges like it has this year, and we're dealing with some similar form of circumstances as far as coronavirus, they, they will have felt that burn very badly. So you're going to also have some willingness on their side to just, just get to a rate that's going to get me guaranteed capacity. You know, what, what can we what can we do as far as talk about guaranteed capacity? And I think that's going to be really the way it's going to be approached this year. Do you think that they're going to add, change up their contracts a little bit and be like, hey, no more surprise fees? 
<laughs> no, no, I don't. Uh, I, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe one day. Yeah, I think you are seeing, this is exposing a number of things, but it's also exposing the inefficiency and the oper- you know, the operation side of the business. Um, you know, the paperwork, I mean, that, that type of like, uh, you know, for that to still be happening, um, original bills of lading, you know, it's really, um, you know, wild how, how, you know, how slow it's been to kind of adapt to this, this tech age that we've seen kind of a revolution of even here in the last couple of years, things have changed a, a tremendous amount. I think it's exposing little, little nuances like that, that, that we're getting a lot of light shed on them. And I think, uh, you know, on the backside of this, I think, uh, hopefully at least we'll, we'll come out better, you know, for having experienced this, this, Un- unprecedented logistical challenge in the country. Unprecedented for sure. Henry, can you dive into one last topic here while we still have you on? Can you talk a little bit more about transloading? Are you seeing the situation get any better? Um, what we're seeing that domestic intermodal is up while international is kind of starting to recede. Well, what's so crazy about that, uh, Anthony, is that, you know, we obviously talk a lot offline and, and we've all talked about you know, things like empty container movements, um, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, you and I, you know, both certainly, um, you know, have talked about the the intermodal side of that equation. And, and one thing I, I was uh, not so, um, I didn't expect to happen. I didn't expect to see it on this level. It's the amount of four loaded containers that exist from uh, overseas. So when these containers come in, you know, truckers like to deal with really nice, cleanly palletized. Um, you know, if you if you try to pitch a, a load to a, a, a carrier for a four loaded um, load, truckload load, that, that's a lot, uh, few, and a lot more of a negative light than like just cleanly palletized stuff. And so as far as translating goes, the, a lot, huge amount of the inefficiency that's going on at the moment is the fact that, you know, warehouses are able to kind of pick over that palletized, nicely clean, you know, stuff that's super efficient, high margin. Um, you know, do those first, right? That they just don't like dealing with the four loaded containers. So when you're talking about moving goods into Los Angeles and Long Beach, and you have a hope and, and prayer of, of getting that in a truckload over to the East Coast or Chicago, Dallas, wherever, um, you know, the things like expedited team drivers, all that, it's uh it's quite a mess as far as just getting that that freight into you know 53 foot drive ends. But I think a lot of that freight there is still kind of waiting it out because uh, a lot of that's not necessarily um, you know, do whatever we can possibly do, like, like as far as draining it across the country. I think uh, I think they will have times, you know, a couple of weeks to get that those containers transloaded. So I expect outbound tender volumes to pick up a bit more, especially for accepted volumes out of the Ontario market. Um, I think a lot of that freight just kind of pin up still and hasn't been able to make it over to the truckload sector. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I wrote kind of a, an article kind of making a little conjecture there last week on the chart of the week about seeing that domestic intermodal rise. Um, and, and that floor loading is no joke. Uh, every one of those 20s uh, and 40s that I saw, they were just jammed as tight as you could jam them. And it was a mess. You didn't know what was coming out of those things sometimes when you opened them. Um, we certainly did not well, like I mean, to deal with it. It's natural for it's natural for domestic intermodal to, hmm. you know, kind of uh, assist truckload, you know, capacity as well. Because think about it, if you just can't get a truck or you just can't get your thing transloaded, right. you know, perhaps there's a scenario where someone who has intermodal assets is, you know, offering a, a maybe they have a better process for transloading, right? So, yeah, they, right. you know, that, that, that at that point, that's that's like an expedited intermodal move, right? I mean, these right. are, you're talking about this high margin for them as well. So 
when you sort of see the international containers being rejected, you know, keep in mind that that that's kind of, you know, like that low paying contract freight and truckload that gets rejected every time, you know, spot rates go up. Likewise, the intermodal carriers are certainly picking over their, their choices as far as high margin, you know, expedited inter, intermodal, you know, domestic moves that can make them a hefty, hefty profit this time of year. Oh, that's a really good point right there. Um, and, you know, we're about up on time, Henry, uh, but thank you so much uh, for coming on here and giving us all those insights. It was, I, I could sit here and talk for another hour <laughs> uh, if we had the time, but uh, thanks so much, Henry. And can, where can people reach out to you if they need to talk more maritime and boats? Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn uh, or, or my email, hbuyers at, at freightwaves.com. Um, you know, we're working on a lot of things on the ocean side. Obviously, this this uh, last couple of years has, you know, forced, uh, you know, our hand even further as far as getting the, the really great data that we have access to, you know, out into the wild. So certainly working on a lot of interesting things. If you're involved in ocean freight or moving it, certainly we'd love to talk and get some feedback about our thoughts on the, this future iteration of Sonar and uh, certainly, you know, welcome some, some, some potential you know, beta testers, maybe. So it's one of those things where certainly would love to hear from you um, if you're, you're, you're interested. Very good stuff. Thanks, Henry. Have a great Thursday. So Henry is one of the guys that I always feel <laughs> way more enlightened. I mean, <laughs> and in the know after I hear him talk because, and then I also think of all the things that I wasn't thinking about that I didn't even know right? was a thing. So, That's what I love is those little yeah. moments where it's like, oh yeah. Yeah, you know, you may know how a system works, but there's all these little things that sometimes you're you forget about or that aren't necessarily a thing until they are. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Also, I have to give some shout out to some of the LinkedIn love. We have William Rufu who was saying that yes, he was that heading from Seattle and Salt Lake to go to SoCal. Um, also, I have to give a shout out to Hector Hernandez. Yeah, Seattle. I mean, th yeah. think about that. Deadheading from Seattle to SoCal. Exactly. Down that I-5. Exactly. And it so, snowed and rained out there this week. <laughs> appreciate you, William, for, yeah, for giving us some context there. Uh, Hector Hernandez, co-founder and CSO at Dex Freight, chiming in with the shout out. Hello, hello. And we also had, I think it was Christina was also, oh, Krista was in the comments as well. So yeah, we appreciate you guys joining in. And we have a little segment at the end of the show, of course, Debatonomics, where we go. I get to ask <laughs> Zach some why is this how did random this become questions. a one directional yeah, thing we changed it <laughs> so we changed i just it. like subtly over the last couple of weeks it's like let's just pound zach yeah exactly. everybody knows all about zach exactly what? we wanna, got some hot takes for you i want to know um, more about anthony so real quick from the control room <laughs> what makes a good halloween costume uh how believable it is uh okay how realistic store-bought right? versus homemade um Again, that depends on the quality of the, you know, what you're doing. Like, if it looked believable, but I've seen some homemade stuff, man, that just that blows. Yeah, I guess the best potential is for the homemade. Okay. Um, this isn't a question, just a statement. Frazier wants you canceled. All right, next question. <laughs> is cereal a soup? No. Is hot dog a sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Why were those so? There's no just just there's no <laughs> there's no there's no there's no reason to debate that a hot cereal is not a soup uh, okay. because it is cereal <laughs> cereal is its own thing it is not a subset of a soup either it might be kind of soupish it can get soupy but it's not a soup so you what know about, speaking of Seinfeld oh, okay. soup Nazi does not serve cereal 
<laughs> I have no Next. idea what you're talking about. Exactly. I'm going to have Some to watch that do. someday. Thanks Maybe today's not the day, but mm -hmm. thank you all for watching today. We'll see you on the next episode.